You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation. Brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com. And be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. You're listening to this podcast. You love podcasts. Hopefully, you also love the Second City and our work. You know who else will love podcasts from the Second City? Your colleagues and employees. I'm excited to share a new partnership that the Second City Works is entering into with Venly, an audio technology company that allows businesses to share audio and podcasts directly for employee engagement and learning and development. Our new series, First Takes, uses amazing corporate insights and teaching that we've developed through the years and communicates it in eight short podcast episodes. Share this content with your employees on channels like Slack, Microsoft Teams, SharePoint, First Up, and your LMS, all with enterprise-grade security, privacy, and analytics. Interested in sharing this content and learning more? Register at www.venly.co slash Second City, and we'll get you set up. Once again, it's www.vennly.co slash Second City to get access to the First Takes content series. We're looking forward to learning with you and your colleagues. Uh, today, we welcome Marcus Buckingham back to the show. Um, Marcus is a best-selling author, global researcher, and thought leader focused on unlocking people's strengths, improving their performance, and pioneering the future of how people work. He is the head of people and performance research at the ADP Research Institute. His new book is called Love and Work, How to Find What You Love, Love What You Do, and Do It for the Rest of Your Life. I really enjoyed talking to Marcus. Time just flies with this guy. So enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is getting the yes and. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the Marcus Buckingham, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Super happy to be here. It's great to have you here. So when I finished reading your new book, uh, which is called Love Plus Work, I had a very specific response that I knew I wanted to share with you, but I actually have no idea how you're going to respond to this. Um, and I want to preface it that this is not a negative judgment actually at all, but this feels like a book that is informed by and emanates from a fair amount of grief and trauma. And, and I wonder if that resonates with you. And, and let me also say this is, I, I, I'm talking a bit personal, but also collective, like the world we live in. Yes. Well, I am. Um, oh, by the way, it's love and work is the love title of the work. book. Love and work. I just like the juxtaposition, you know, war and peace, love and work. I, I kind of enjoyed that, uh, the incongruity of that. Yeah. Um, Yes. I mean, I, on a macro scale, we've all been through two and a half years of looking at ourselves in the mirror. It's like we've been a diver going deep, 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 deep. And we've looked in the mirror and some days it was scary what we saw. Yeah. And we didn't know ourselves and we lost our rhythms and our routines and who we bump into at the coffee shop and who we walk by maybe on the way to our cubicle or our work and uh, the people that we meet kind of locate us and remind us of our identity as we say hello to them, as we see them in terms of who they are. And we didn't get to see any of that. We just all by ourselves. Yeah. Like Tom Hanks on that Island with that ball Wilson. <laughs> yes. um, and some days it's really, really scary. And you start thinking about what your identity is and what your contribution is and what you're doing. Now there are good days as well. And I think it's one of the good things that come out of the pandemic is, is that you've got an awful lot more self-reliance now, more self-mastery even as you think about how can you be productive and how you, can you contribute 
Um, and of course, for companies to then come around and go to treat us as though we're the same people as we were two and a half years ago is a huge mistake. It's like dragging a yes. diver from way down the depths and yanking them up to the surface and their blood boils um, right. for a diver, literally their blood literally. boils. Mm-hmm. Um, but for us, yeah, I think it's caused, certainly for me, it causes you to go down deep and go, what the heck am I doing? What am I doing? I'm here for a short period of time. And we don't know any of us how short that period of time is, but in the grand scheme of things for all of us, it's pretty bloody short. And in that time we have an opportunity to, um, to take stock of whatever unique gifts we've been blessed with or unique um, combinations of uh, ways of thinking and feeling and behaving. And it's incumbent upon us to then take those seriously and figure out a way to turn them into contribution. That's what we've got to do. And so this book, in a sense, came out of that. It came out of, I got, I got divorced in 2015. I never thought that would happen to me. That was mm-hmm. an extra for anyone who's ever getting divorced. Yeah. I mean, it's an incredibly um, disorienting thing to do if you happen to think you're a good person. Um, and then I had a couple of things that happened with my kids that were just extraordinarily um, exposing and difficult And all of it causes you to go, wait a minute. Are we just cogs in a machine? Are we just going through the motions in a sort of inoculated, antiseptic, non-self-aware way? Are we just going to work in a transactional way where we do our thing and get given our money in in, in the form of compensation, a word that we normally use if something bad has happened to you at work? You get compensation and then you go back and try to spend it in some way in your real life. I came out of the pandemic and those experiences personally going, no, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. This isn't like, this isn't Joseph Stiglitz's, Stiglitz's uh, investor capitalism or stakeholder capitalism rather, where you've got em- employees of one constituency and customers of one constituency and investors of one constituency and the community is one constituency. We've got to, got to balance all four of them. No, there's one main constituency and that's each individual person. Work can be a place in which each one of us gets a chance to take our unique mark seriously and contribute it. That's real. If we do that really genuinely as companies, as individuals, as teams, as leaders, if we do that really genuinely, then all the other constituencies get beautifully served. Hmm. But the whole, the whole point of what we're doing is we get up and try to add value, whether it's in our job or anywhere else, is to try to take the unique things that we've been blessed with seriously and contribute them. And I think my uh, personal trauma and the collective trauma of these last two and a half years uh, certainly led me to that, which is why, which is why the book. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So uh, I, I felt that deeply. And I was talking to Stephen Covey yesterday who wrote a more traditional business book, but even, and this is actually quite a few of the authors and scientists I've been interviewing are finally coming around to this idea that work-life balance isn't a thing. I know people have tried work-life integration. It's like, it's one thing. We're human beings. We don't change. We don't become non-human beings. We come to work. And mm. I know we were talking about this off air, but when my daughter died, thank God I work at a theater. This was because there was a play. I mean, I work at a comedy theater, but there's a lot of people cry here. Um, but it's a place that's very comfortable with sitting in those sort of sad places. And so I didn't feel this sort of separation. And, and when I talk to other people who don't work in theaters and work at a more traditional business, like they can't talk about it. And, yeah. and not talking about it is the worst thing. So, so this idea of like you, and I'm very curious if you got any bite back from your publisher about the word love, both as a title and a concept inside of what is essentially a business book, but I also call it a life book. Yeah. Well, it's no, funnily enough, I chose to go with Harvard Business Review again uh, as my publisher precisely because I wanted to rehabilitate the word love. Mm -hmm. Um, When you're in love with someone, that chemical cocktail in your brain of of dopamine and vasopressin and norepinephrine, oxytocin, 
it's a weird chemical. And, but what's funny about that chemical is it does seem to dysregulate some of your narrowness and your focus and your goal orientation. And it does seem to open you up to remember more details, to perform cognitive uh, tasks better, to, to be more generous, more open, more loyal, more resilient. It is a, as Barbara Fredrickson would say, it, it, it is a broadening and building that chemical mm-hmm. cocktail when you're in love, which is why love is a jolly good thing. Yes. But what's interesting is when you're doing something that you love and we look at the chemical cocktail in your brain, it's the same bloody chemical cocktail. So that idea of love what, love in what you do, I don't mean, and we can get into this, I don't mean that you got to do what you love Right. So there's data that show that the most successful people love all that they do. That is not true. Or rather, there's vanishingly little data that I've ever seen, which shows that the most successful people love all that they do. But when you look at anyone doing anything brilliantly, when you look at anyone doing anything with excellence, there's love in it. And the love in it biochemically seems to be, and I don't want to reduce everything down to something non-spiritual, just like a, a bio- biological cocktail in your brain. It, it's, it's, I think it's more than that. But but there clearly is something that happens in your brain when you're in love with the activity that you're doing, the thing you're doing. Mike Chekshimahai's thing about flow. Okay, that's yeah. one part of it. But there's something that happens when you're in love with what you do that is magnificent. And so when CEOs talk about what do we want from our people and they, and they wax lyrical about innovation or creativity or teamwork or resilience, all those long Latinate words, what they're really saying is, or or what this book, I suppose, is saying is, you can't get any of those without love. They're all imposters without love. You need to engage with the word love. Oh, you're not comfortable with the word love? Okay, then bugger off, because you're not going to get innovation, creativity, resilience. You're not. So if you've designed loveless work, which, by the way, as we know, many companies have just designed, they've assumed the work is loveless, and then lo and behold, people hate it. Oh, big surprise. So, So let's go with Harvard. And let's have Harvard rehabilitate the word love and say to companies, oh, you've built a loveless workplace? Okay, yeah, I'm sorry. Then you don't deserve the best people, do you? And you won't get them and you'll fail. All the other constituencies that you're trying to serve, your customers, your investors, the community, you're going to fail because you haven't taken the human condition seriously. If you're going to take it seriously, you've got to engage with that word love. And we're all really different. We are all so darn different in terms of what we love. Oh, Oh, that gets in the way, does it, of you wanting uniformity and conformity in your company? Oh, okay. Then you won't deserve the best people. So it's kind of like I wanted to poke and go, I'm not being deliberately provocative. I'm just, I mean, as you know, I'm a studier of excellence. That's what I spent my whole career doing. Right. And and people who excel in a certain job data guy. Let's study the best yeah. housekeepers. Let's study the best miners. Let's study the best doctors. Let's study. When you do that, you have to bump into the word love. Otherwise, it's a cop-out. And if companies can't deal with that, then they won't deserve the best people. And it's that simple. So let's put it out there for the world of business. Let's do it with a place that you normally consider to be quite sober and serious. Uh, yeah. I have a business review. And then let's at least start to have an intelligent conversation about what love and work, that beautiful interaction of love leading to work, leading to love, leading to it. Let's at least talk about what that is and what that could be in any job, because we've been through hell these last two years. We'll continue, I'm sure, to have trauma. Uh, Love is the great redeemer of all of that. And to have any sort of conversation about our future without that word love in the center of it, whether at home or at work and we, we can talk about more about work-life balance if you want and how, how pernicious that is. But, right. but to have a conversation about a better future without the word love in it is inhuman. Yeah, yeah. And, and I also think it, it, it was a sort of fascinating turn in the book, which is I think we maybe would have an assumption walking into that idea going, well, everyone needs to be in these most creative jobs where you get all... And that's, that a lot of people love their work and their work is working in a hotel you know, cleaning up rooms you talk about and mm-hmm. and also recognizing Barbara Ehrenreich, who, whose work was very cutting edge. And I think very appreciated at a certain level mm-hmm. when put through this other lens becomes like a little cringy. Well, it, yeah. And it's no, like not, I, yeah. And I, <laughs> and I, 
I'm not knocking on Barbara, but basically what Barbara Ehrenreich did in a really well-written book, she's a great writer. Yeah, she's she's a writer and a kind of, uh, she's um, a Stodd's Turkle-ish sort of um, investigator of the real world. So what Barbara did was she, she, she took a lot of menial jobs for a year, like cleaning people's houses or cleaning hotel rooms or working in what she considered to be menial work. And then she wrote about how awful it was and how poorly paid these people were. And if we were going to get them to do such rotten jobs, we should compensate them for their, um, you know, for the burden we put on them more than we do. And frankly, as I say in the book, I, I agree with that. What we're, the, the disparity between frontline salaries and, and CEO salaries is obscene. But um, Barbara's committed a fallacy that we all make, or they, she's committed a mistake that we all make. We assume that just because we find something loveless, there must be no love in it. Right. And as I play out in the book, I mean, gosh, I couldn't imagine there's many, many millions of people who think that Barbara's job is just horrific to try oh, to right. do interviews yeah. and write notes and then try to yeah. put the notes together into an, a, a piece of work where you're writing. I mean, it just sounds like, gosh, I'm so sorry, Barbara, that you have to do that. that that's, <laughs> oh my God. And of course, for Barbara, it's like, are you kidding me? I mean, I, I'm elevated. But you study the best. I mean, you brought up housekeepers. I mean, that, that's the very first job I had at Gallup was trying yeah. to interview the world's best housekeepers at Walt Disney World. Mm-hmm. And you get the eight best housekeepers around the table and they're speaking Haitian Creole and they're speaking Portuguese and they don't know each other. And some of them are speaking English and they're, but they're all great housekeepers in the same job. And you just start asking them, what do you love about your work? Or what do you get a kick out of about your work? Or even just what's a normal day look like for you? And off they go describing a job that doesn't look like it's in the job description at all. There'll be one of them that will say, I get a kick out of seeing the room from the exact perspective of the way the guest sees the room. So I'll sit on the toilet or I'll lie in the tub. Or actually, you know, the very last thing I'll do is I'll lie on the bed and I'll turn on the ceiling fan. And I'm like, I'm 22 at the time and I'm an idiot. And so they they look at me like I'm an idiot, but I'm going, why would you do that? And she goes, because that's the very first thing the guest does after a long day in the theme parks. Come down, flop on the bed and turn on the fan. And if dust's comes off the top of the fan it's the guest thinks it's as dirty as the rest of the room and then somebody else though goes i love it when it's a super busy day lots of checkouts and i got to get the cart perfect because i love the speed of having to get the ins and outs really done quickly and someone else says i want to take the fluffy toys the kids leave on the bed and arrange them in a little scene so goofy's got his arm on a remote control mickey's got his arm on a french fry container and the kids they come back in and think ha ha goofy and donald just hung out and watching tv you look at a a job through the lens of someone who loves it and it is an undiscovered country of variety and frankly not to be too kind of polemical on a on a thursday morning for me here um it's super condescending yeah yeah to say that's a crappy job when you haven't even bothered to ask the people that excel extraordinarily at it you haven't seen through their eyes by the way, there's variation even in that job. So these were the eight best out of 3,000 housekeepers. There was variation even amongst those eight. It wasn't like they were all homogenous. They were getting a different sort of kick out of different sorts of parts of the job. But for them, it was vivid and elevating and cool and interesting. I'm not suggesting they should do housekeeping for the rest of their lives. I'm not suggesting that they were paid as much as they should have been paid. All, all those things are other implications. But you have to begin by listening to people who love what they do in order to learn about what they do. Because what you love, in this case, Barbara, isn't what they love. So be very, very, very careful that you you don't start with opinion as opposed to starting with questions. I'm curious because we're we're almost exactly the same age. And it wasn't until I started working with the behavioral science community, even all my years at Second City, which is – Improvisation is very much a study of human behavior. Just in the last few years, was I awoken to the idea that we don't nearly interrogate ourselves enough. We we, we make all these mistakes and assumptions and all these biases. There's so much noise in the world that is standing between human beings that it's almost magical and amazing that we're able to do what we do. (laughs) Like that we're not that we're not careening into cars (laughs) as we walk outside. Uh, but it took like it's not something anyone taught me as a young person. It wasn't anything that was really addressed in education or business, to, to my knowledge. 
That was new no, to me. It's, it's, well, this, I hope as part of the people who are listening to your show here today, I hope one of the things, um, and obviously I dive into it in some detail in the book, but I'm sitting there talking to my daughter who's, who's 16 at the time. And she's saying, can you tell me the difference between a rhombus and a parallelogram? And I'm like, because obviously during the pandemic, a lot of us parents have turned into yeah. teachers as well, right? Yeah. So I couldn't remember. But as I'm talking to her about it, it certainly strikes me that somebody's taking geometry really, really seriously because she's had 10 years of it. 10 years of, of, of language around geometry and routines and rituals and uh, approaches to geometry. And someone's taken it really seriously, for her, which, by the way, is great. But all the things that you were just talking about, who is she? How does she make decisions? How does she build relationships? How does she come up with new and interesting configurations in favor of uh, the existing configurations? Namely, how does she get creative? How does she explain herself to the people who don't know her in a way that isn't braggadocio? How does she express curiosity to people she hasn't met yet without seeming to be too intrusive? How, how, uh, and not like a theory of relationships or a theory of creativity, but how does she build relationships? How does she be creative? Mm -hmm. Okay. She gets nothing on that. Zero. Absolutely no years at all. You might take strength finder as a little gimmick. You might take Enneagram as a gimmick. You mm -hmm. might take Myers Briggs as a gimmick. It's a gimmick. It's a, it's a, it's a helium balloon at a birthday party, but the really big stuff about, Hey, you know, how do you actually how do you make sense of yourself, of yourself in the world? And how can you feel like you can move yourself right along with you every mm -hmm. day in a way that feels healthy? All of that. All, by the way, all the stuff that a company would want. A company would really want to hire my daughter and have her not be clueless as she's trying to join one team after another, probably now a hybrid remote team. Right. And, and is, is clueless about how she thinks, how she builds relationships, how she, how she bounces back, how she focuses, like all that stuff. Which, by the way, is underpinned by a hundred trillion synaptic connections in her brain, which mm -hmm. we know is true biologically. Mm -hmm. The network of synaptic connections in her brain will never be repeated again by anyone ever in history, ever. It is an utterly unique pattern of synaptic connections and different from her brothers and different just like yours is different from anyone you grew up with. And that's real for her, right? And, and yes, we can help her know that she's a woman and that she's a woman of a certain race and that she's a woman of a certain nationality or a certain age and those things and a certain sexual orientation. And that's great to have her be aware of and comfortable with those things about her. But she shares all those things with millions of other people. The only thing she doesn't share with anyone is this hundred trillion set of synaptic connections, which leads her to love some things, hate other things, pay attention to some things, ignore other things. You work in a comedy troupe, find some, she finds some things funny, not funny. Sure. All of that uniqueness that I said in the book, it's, it's more stars than there are in 5,000 Milky Ways of uniqueness in her we give her nothing to help her understand and make sense of that, let alone how to contribute it. In school, it's all information transfer from the outside in, and then we confirm it through standardized testing. And that's in high school, that's in college, and very sadly, that's in work too. That's the world of work you encounter. And we couch it nicely. We'll use words like growth mindset. Hey, you can, you can rewire your brain's plastic you can rewire your brain, this is to my daughter, however you want to. Now, as it happens, we know that's completely not true. She can continue to grow and learn, but her growth and learning is, is, is following a configuration that's really an amplification of the pattern already there in her brain because she grows more synapses in those parts of the brain. She has the most pre-existing ones. So, so not that she can't, I mean, it's always been a fake dichotomy to me, growth mindset or fix. It's like, no, we all grow. The question is, where will you grow the most and how? And so for her, all that cool stuff about how is your uniqueness felt by you? How do you express it? How about this one? How can you use your normal life to give you ever richer detail about that which you love and how you can contribute it? All that, to your point, we don't give her anything. No. And this isn't, she's not an anomaly. Like that's nowhere. No. It is. I, and yeah. so you can feel my passion about it. It's like, right. if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, Kelly, I, and I haven't written this book. I was like, oh crap, I got to write it because that this is an unbelievable miss 
that we do this to our kids. And then when our kids get alienated from themselves, when we, when, oh my word, all this outside in information transfer and confirmation learning, when that keeps hitting the kid and, and they, and the kid gets lost and, and alienated from themselves. Oh dear. You know what? Here's some Adderall. Oh, here's some Xanax to take the edge off the Adderall. Or here's a bunch of other drugs that will ensure that you're anesthetized from the fact that you have no relationship with yourself. Okay, that's not Marcus, you know, pounding the pavement or, as it were, exaggerating. That's just real. And we keep doing it. And it's not good enough, not just from a moral standpoint, okay, but, but from a pragmatic standpoint, the workplace doesn't want to hire people who no. are bloody clueless. No, and, and, and yeah, and, and hiring managers have figured this out. They're, they're more and more knowing, like, I don't need you to have this specific expertise. I need to know that you are uh, pliable and resilient and, you know, uh, you can learn. And, and, and when you have those kind of people, they can kind of do almost anything, especially the, as we're talking about the future of work, right, where machine learning, AI, they're going to take on a lot of those rote jobs. So, so the jobs will be for people who have the most human qualities, storytelling, right? right? How yeah. to like, and we teach a lot, we have businesses come to us all the time for storytelling because we have to be able, if we want to sell some, someone something, often people are, are the product, yes, but they're also buying from a human, and that human has to have a story that they can tell, um, and it rooted in specifics, and rooted in things, things like love, like, like how are we going to connect? Well, how do I find out what you love so I can tell you what you love? Hmm. It, and, and I don't know if you've – I'm a broken record with this book, but Annie Murphy Paul's The Extended Mind, if you haven't read, it's brilliant. And her – have read that. Yeah, this idea that we get thinking wrong hmm. and that you know, so much of our – you know, we're sensing stuff with our body before our brain. That's a life changer for me. That's, that's like, there's like ways I've reduced certain kinds of anxieties simply by understanding that. So like one of the things I, I, if I get nervous when a truck is passing me on a highway, I smile, calms the brain. Mm. So I'm 55 years old. I'm just learning this. This is like, (laughs) so, so the idea that, and I think a lot, the reason a lot of people find themselves in improv classes because, you know, not everyone wants to be on Saturday Night Live. There's a certain contingency that's here for that. Other people are here because they've got social anxiety and they just want to be for three hours every week with no phone, looking to someone's eyes, practicing what it means to pay attention to someone else and have someone else pay attention to them, to be seen. Just well, well, yes. No, that's, there's a whole big chunk of the book that's about... You can't love what you can't see. Right. And part of what I was just talking about in terms of my daughter or in terms of Nora with you, it was, you know, it's like you, you, want, you want to have a life in which you get that wonderful gift of being seen. And of course, the first person who's got to do the seeing is you. Mm-hmm. And that's why I started off the book and go, you know, most of us don't go far beyond the introduction to ourselves. Hi, I'm Marcus. I mean, that's about <laughs> sort of about how far it goes. Yeah. And so the first person that you've got to really see is yourself to really understand, well, what is my uniqueness in terms of my story, in terms of what sort of story I want to tell, but also really in the vivid detail of, I call them red threads, but it's like your, your day all aspects of your day, whether it's your job or whether it's your community work or whether it's your friends or whether it's your family, your day is just filled with threads, activities, moments, situations, context. They're hitting you all the time. And some of the threads are uh, black or gray or brown or white. They're a little up, they're a little down, meh. But some of those activities and situations and moments are red threads. They're, they're made of different material, it feels like. They just grab your attention for no good reason. They grab your attention. They lift you up. You find yourself volunteering for them. Sometimes you procrastinate them, but when you're doing them, oh my God, time flies by when you're doing them you feel some sort of innate inside out sense of mastery somehow you feel more like it's like whoa what is that well that's a red thread and what we know from data is that the most successful people don't need a fully red quilt to be successful whether it's a doctor a nurse a teacher you study the best ones and the threshold is about 20 percent. if you got 20 percent of your day red threads you are you are so much more creative productive resilient all the things you'd want to be 
which is basically just finding love in your day. And to your point before, it doesn't just have to be in your job. You don't have five different cups that need to be filled and balanced. You've got one cup that's either filled or empty of love. And if it's empty, you are a brittle and very broken thing. But if it's filled with love, whether you're pulling those red threads from your job, whether you're pulling them from spending three hours with you trying to improvise, if you'll pull it, by the way, some people might hate that, but for some people that's like, ah, oh. mm-hmm. and, and even the people that are coming to you, I bet they find different red threads in it, yes. you know, mm-hmm. um, or whether it's from your, you as a father, you as a brother, you as a friend, everyone, you know, I'm a dad, but, but what I get, my red threads as being a dad, I bet they're not the same as yours. I bet they're meaningfully, specifically, detailedly different. For sure. So the first person you've got to start going, what are my red threads? And by the way, you could do this at nine years old. Kids, you just start asking a kid, when was the last time a day flew by? When was the last time an hour flew by? And they'll not, some of them will go video games. And then you'll go, okay, but does it matter which one you're playing? Does it matter when you're playing it? Does not matter who? You start pulling on the detail at nine years old of what a kid loves to do and the vividness and talk about detail in stories, the richness of the detail of that kid talking about that particular thread that they love. I mean, gosh, the first people we should start to talk about this with is parents Mm because most parents cover their bloody kids in tinfoil to protect them from the world and then wonder why the only person they see when they look at their kid is themselves reflected back. We got to see our kids. And of course, if you start off and have a deep relationship with yourself where you are actually taking your red threads, the specifics of your loves, if you're taking them seriously, then almost immediately you start to realize that if you are this incredibly beautiful filigreed complex being with very different loves and loads, then so must that next person be. The next person I meet has got to be equally filigreed and individual and weird in the best possible sense of the word weird. I mean, and that's frankly what I was hoping to convey in the book, Kelly, was that the moment you start doing this with yourself is the moment it flips around and you go, I need to see other people. Mm-hmm. Now at work, of course, that means that's a team and I got to start seeing the team, but let's face it more broadly in life. Um, we, John Paul Sartre's thing, hell is other people. Well, it depends on your lens. If you look at people through the lens of love and you start being really interested in what they, they love, regardless of their race, their gender, their age, their experience, whatever, just who the heck are you? Then mm-hmm. suddenly heaven is other people because right. they are unbelievably unique and that's i mean as you were saying about jobs we shouldn't fight against that we shouldn't build companies where we're trying to make the uniqueness of people be ground down into as much homogeneity as we can i mean what a bloody tragedy that is for the individuals for everyone it's a it's a productivity tragedy too you know it's so yeah being seen you can't love what you can't see. God, like just keep pulling on that thread for a while and you'll see very different workplaces, um, very different schools. But as you said, very different, um, very different lives for each and every yeah. one of us. I, I, it's interesting. I was making me reflect on when our son, Nick, was ready to go to school. We lived down the street from, uh, it just opened, is the British school. So he went for a year to the British school, uh, which we then pulled him out of. Um, and he ended up going, both Nick and Nora went their uh, lives through Chicago Waldorf. Mm-hmm. And the Waldorf school is play. It's stories. They're baking bread. There's I, like, you, 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 I can smell it now in terms of that. And so, and, and they don't teach like writing for like everyone freaks out about that they're like you know oh my god my kid's not gonna be able to write it's like your kid's gonna be able to write this is like there's not you know it's just but why not let them explore when they're very young in these places of and one of the things they talk a lot about at waldorf is risky play which you think Mm. like you would think is insane in terms of like you're gonna get sued but it's like no (laughs) that kids need to go out in the world and and fall and climb and so i i feel like the, the education I didn't get, um, I'm lucky where I ended up in a creative place. But Nick got that. And I think it, it really helped him successfully navigate college 
mm. COVID. This idea of he wants to be an actor, but he also those, those gigs are haven't been happening. Uh, so he pivoted and he got a really good job and he's making money. And but he, but he still knows he wants to do the art. Um, most kids don't get that. And as you were saying, and I know that that's hit you personally in, in you know, a variety of ways in, in your story. Um, well, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where you think that, because <laughs> the books love and work. So we have, a, there's a pretty deep dive into what are the clues to that which you love? How can you use, I mean, part of the thing we need to change, by the way, Kelly, is our relationship to our own life. I think we wake up every morning and we think life is something to be withstood. There's a list of to-dos that I didn't get done yesterday, and I better get through them. I better get through this day. And while there's some of that, of course, it'd be so helpful to twist it around and go, wait a minute. No, 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 no. Life's putting on a show for you every day. Life is doing a song and dance for you every day, trying to show you where your red threads might be. How about this one? How about this? How about this? How about this? How about this? How about that? How about this? Life's doing that every day. If you just change your view of life and just went, gosh, I wonder... I wonder what life's going to show me today. What a wonderfully simple way, not idealistic way, because there's a bunch of other things that are going to bore you or drain you or whatever. And, and you, you'll never have a life that's a perfectly red quilt, right? So, right. But those loves, I mean, people often say that love is like a luxury. And, but actually, and certainly this is true, um, as I wrote about in the book, lo- you, your loves aren't just the fuel for learning, although they are. Mm-hmm. You learn most through that appetite and you, your learning is more exponential versus incremental, but, but they're also your savior when things go really wrong. I mean, you've had trauma in your life. Mm-hmm. I've had trauma in my life. Mm-hmm. We've all had trauma. If we're not careful, we become defined by our trauma. That's we right. become traumatized. I mean, that's what yeah. it, and if you look at most psychology still yet today, it's fixated on, on, on disentangling, becoming ever more expert in the sources of your trauma. When if you're not careful, if, because change follows the focus of your attention, if you keep pushing on that, you end up living inside that. That's, that's how you characterize yourself. And, and from there, it's very hard to go anywhere from, from there. Loves, actually, I mean, and the story I won't, I mean, yeah, the, I grew up, my first 12 years of my life, I couldn't speak, right? I had a stammer. Unbelievable to me that you, because you, you, I know, <laughs> well, it was unbelievable to, it was, it was horrible and unbelievable. Yeah. And with a name like Marcus Buckingham, it's like, you can't, it's not just, you can't speak. It's like, you can't, yeah, I'm just going to flip this up, but you, you, you can't, everything's just stuck in your head. You're stuck, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I, went to a speech pathologist who tries, you know, they know quite a lot about how disfluency occurs and the, and the misfiring of your synapses. And as if you, if you saw the King's speech yeah. film, you can sort of see the early beginnings of some of the rituals and some of the routines you've got to get into to quote unquote, cure you of your stammer. For me, it, it was an accidental cure and it went away in a week and it went away by somehow suddenly revealing to me something that I had no idea that was a red thread that was a red thread that should not have been a red thread that is in no speech pathology textbook as something that you should do to fix a stammer. Mm -hmm. They, uh, I I got picked to speak aloud in chapel in class when I was 12. I was not one of every kid. They picked five out of the 60 kids. I was one of the five. And you're like, you bloody sadists. Why would you do that? And yeah, I got up, I turned around, I looked at all these people looking at me and it, you can actually, I can still remember it today. So I t- I'm almost immediately transported back to that moment yeah. because it's, it's a physiological feeling in your head where the things that you couldn't, I mean, speaking, speaking, you should just be able to speak. And if you have a stutter, you, you don't know why and you can't yeah. and it's yeah. weird. But looking at 400 people, somehow the synapse, a different combination of synapses fired that was always there but i i'd never spoken in front of people for the obvious reason i couldn't speak and i didn't have a single stutter right so it's like i had fluency for the first time ever in my life i had fluency my entire school looked at me like because everyone knew i couldn't speak i mean everyone knew that was my nickname was barking i mean i i was like so that was me i was the joke you know and then but because you go oh my gosh for whatever reason i didn't use the word red thread but that's a red thread of mine. 
I, I'm in, I vanish into the thing I'm doing. I, I do get into flow. I'm, I'm magnified when I'm talking to 400 people. And then almost immediately, and I think this was, I mean, it's God reaching down or the universe telling me something, but somebody said, use that love every time you're talking to anyone, even if it's just one person, pretend you're talking, talk about an extended mind. This is the yes. same thing, right? Yeah. Just pretend you're talking to 400 and your mind will follow the illusion. And as I wrote in the book, it went away in a week. It was, I was cured <laughs> in quotes <laughs> in a week, but I hadn't really done anything, Kelly. I just no. had something that was done to me. And I was lucky enough, I think, to know, gosh, that love of mine will be the integrating point through which I can communicate. And I'm not, you know, I'm an example of one. That's my story. I'm not suggesting that every person who stammers should try that. That's not what I'm saying at all, because many people, well, that would be a total disaster. But I'm saying that I had a particular impediment, a really serious impediment for me. Anyway, it was pretty serious. I couldn't speak. And the solution wasn't to dive deeper and deeper and deeper into the trauma or deeper and deeper and deeper into the cause. What was the cause? Was I competing with my brother? Was it the fact that my father and I didn't have a good relationship? What was causing? Can we remove the cause of the stammer and then we can get the solution to that? No, you know what? We could talk about some of that stuff if you want, but why don't we just look at what you love and see whether or not what you love can lead you into a different world for you. Take someone, just, just to riff on this for one quick second, with social anxiety disorder. Right. Look, we could dive into where, where it came from. We could dive into the exact manifestation of it. But could we instead maybe have you come to Second City and we'll try and see where you might find any red thready bits yeah. Of you being you and being seen. And, and if we and playing. And we and everyone's gonna play differently. Yeah. But maybe then when you start playing, it's like that. If you if you were doing this in a therapeutic setting, you'd go, Hey, listen, when do you find you're actually at ease socially? When do you find that you are actually looking forward to and, and you'd keep pulling on that thread to see. Where does play come in? Where do you actually find yourself smiling? Now, you could start with a smile, and, but we could become really curious about where your loves are, not to pat you on the head, but actually to use it as a curative, as a, as a remediation, if you like, to your disorder. And we don't, mm, we have never really taken love seriously in that way at all. No, the closest, the closest thing I can think of is the positive psychology movement. This idea of not starting with the thing that's wrong with you, but starting with the thing that you, that, that, that's right about you, what's right about you and working out from there. Um, and that was radical. And then still, you know, I mean, it's, it's, we're, we're still, we're still running from Freud and we're going to be for, for some time. Uh, I could talk to you forever, uh, but I can't. Um, and we've had some repeat guests on. We're trying a new thing because you've, you've shared with us a yes and story before. And uh, we were talking before we started taping about this idea around yes and to thank you because, which most of my audience knows, is this idea of how you stay inside a difficult conversation, uh, a, a difficult situation. And that's with gratitude and some grounded specifics, which is, I think, touches on the things we've talked about here. Um, do you have a yes and a thank you because story for us? Well, I think the, the first one that came to mind when you brought that up was, um, was the headmaster who made me stand up and for speak, sure. who I hated at that time because it was the most uncomfortable thing I could possibly imagine doing. So I, I thank him for maybe inadvertently putting me in a situation where there was such a weirdly different set of stimuli. And that happens to be that one of the stimuli, 400 people looking at me unlocked something in me that I didn't know existed. So I I'm thankful because of that. Um, The other thing most recently is my, my eldest got caught up in that whole college cheating scandal thing right which was really it's devastating um not his fault no no it it was you know my ex had felt her fear and had taken all sorts of um immoral and what turned out to be illegal action but i'm thankful for that situation Hmm. i'm not sure that i'm thankful for much of it that's right but i'm thankful for it because it 
gave me a crystalline understanding of what my parents had given me, mm-hmm. which was space. Right. And that night before, you know, I'd had a practice session with the headmaster before I was speaking. And it was terrible. There was nobody in the chapel. So it was just me. And it was 15 minutes of freakishly elongated awfulness. Mm-hmm. And the ne- you know, that night I went back and complained as best I could to my mom and dad. And I desperately, I couldn't find the words to say it, but I desperately wanted them to pick the phone up and call up the headmaster and say, stop this. This is abuse right. for your son, for my son. And they didn't do that. They, mm-hmm. they gave me the space now, there was huge love around it. In the book, I called it a love bubble. <laughs> it's like a bubble of love. I could bounce around in it. But they were super intelligent space makers. And so as I was suffered through, I mean, this wasn't about me, my suffering, but this, that whole thing with my kids and what was happening and, and how to make sense of it with the, their mom. And that was just all, that was a lot to try to figure out. But the thank you because is through that kind of suffering and fear for your kid and self-recrimination for what you could have stopped if you'd, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Out of it came a crystalline insight about space making. And that if you're Mm going to let a person to your point be seen, then you have to let them make choice. And the choice is what you then see of them. And if you, if you remove the space by rules or regulations or, or intervention followed by intervention followed by intervention. If you remove the space, then you remove the choice. And if you remove the choice, then you can't see the person. And that to me was a huge thank you for the situation because that's where I landed. And I think as we keep pulling on that, there's something for us all to take away about. If we want to help another human grow, whether that's us or our team or our colleague or our family, then we have to be the most intelligent space makers that we can be. I love that. We have a sort of an ongoing joke lately on the podcast that the two most cited people are Peter Drucker and Buddha. Um, And so I immediately think of in the Buddha camp, there is no joy without suffering. There is no suffering without joy. These are two, these things, these dualities, I talk about this with my therapist all the time. And, and it is a, a, a daily, a, a, not even a day, it is a second by second thing that is happening in our lives. And it's not that you, you have to pay attention, you know, to your pain and, 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 and to a certain degree, you've got to be realistic about it. But there's healthy disassociation when you can, when you can find these, these, these loves that you're talking about. So it's practical, it's muscular, it, 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 and, and, and there's a whole element, and I think they're going away now, of people, we got to find a better word for soft skills. Can this be your next, next book? My gosh, it's so not soft at all. It's, it's like, n- it's, it's the stuff hard. of life. We, it's not that we're short of time in the world. It's right. not that we don't have enough time. It's we don't have enough energy. We're worn out. The world of work-life balance is so daft because... Because there's no balance in that. Nothing in nature that's healthy is balanced. Everything we now know is moving and moving through its environment in such a way that it's drawing nourishment from that environment. Well, one of those things moving through an environment is us and the environment we're moving through is called life. So how do you draw enough nourishment, love from the activities and the people of your life to be able to continue to keep contributing? That's not soft. That's just existential. And as Viktor Frankl said in his love lovely book, Man's Search for Meaning, one of the ways that you find meaning, as you said, is through your response to unavoidable suffering. Suffering happens. Life's difficult, and it doesn't play out always the way that you want it to, and good that it doesn't. But through the experiences of your day-to-day, there are things in that day-to-day that bring you love, joy, passion. If you don't like the word love, let's go with energy or let's go with passion. But there's a certain stimulus response, and the response in you is elevating for you and is nourishing for you. And we better know about that because otherwise life can beat the crap out of us. And for many of us, what we're doing with our kids in school with the very best of intentions is child abuse. We are beating the kid up by removing from them them, uh, from their source of nourishment. And then they get to be adults like you and me. And we're still, you know, pretty clueless about how to draw nourishment from a particular Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or whatever. 
um, if, if you call that soft, okay, fine, call it soft. I'll just tell you it's, it's life-affirming and enhancing of any contribution you're ever going to make in life. Yeah. The book is called Love and Work, How to Find What You Love, Love What You Do, and Do It for the Rest of Your Life. Marcus Buckingham, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Getting to Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com. Survive.